Hi everyone, I'm Nicolette and welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. We are so glad to have you as part of our church community. Today, Pastor Char Broderson continues in our series through the book of John in chapter five with his message titled, They Testify of Me. That classic question, how to be happy, wealthy, healthy, and wise. We often look to scripture for those answers, but essentially Jesus is the cornerstone of all scripture. The Bible is not about self-help or inspirational stories. God offering himself to us as the way of life, as the rest and peace our souls long for is the true nourishment and satisfaction for our lives. All of this is offered to us in Jesus Christ. If you'd like to watch more messages from this series in John, please visit our teaching page at cccm.com. So here on Sunday mornings, we're teaching through the Gospel of John with this theme, life in his name. And as I do every time, reminding us of the theme of this Gospel, John writes in John chapter 20 that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John makes it clear that this is not an exhaustive biography of the life and works of Jesus, but he has collected these stories intentionally, and he puts them all together for the church that they might continually center their lives around Jesus in order that they may have life in his name. And we're gonna be talking specifically about that this morning, how you can actually have a community, you can have individuals who think that they are centering their lives around Jesus. They think that they're doing the Jesus thing, but aren't actually experiencing life in his name. And so I do believe that it is John's, of course, intention, but to our benefit that we ask that deep question anytime we come to the scripture or anytime we gather in the name of Jesus, is, is what's being said true of me? Am I experiencing life in the name of Jesus? Am I experiencing a life that I can commend to others? And if we're not, that should send us on this search, whether that's in prayer, whether that is in study of scripture, whether that is in pursuit of, you know, kind of what's going on underneath the surface. To come to Jesus again and to receive his offer that we might have life in his name. And this gospel gives us that opportunity week after week as we gather and hear its teaching. So far in the narrative of John, in, excuse me, in the narrative of John, the religious leaders who John refers to as the Jews have been inconclusive about Jesus, about his person, about his works. Remember a few chapters ago, Nicodemus had told them, we're certain that you are a teacher come from God, but that's about as far as they know at that time. Of course, that was all up until Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and then commanded that same man to break the Sabbath by carrying his bed. Now, in the religious leaders' view, Jesus has deeply transgressed their cultural religious observations and convictions. And so in their estimation, he cannot possibly be good. He cannot be a prophet or teacher from God. He is not observing the law of Moses. He is breaking the Sabbath. <clears throat> well, not only that, but when Jesus is challenged on why he's breaking the Sabbath, he says, oh, my father is always at work to this very day. And so I am working also. Jesus, his reply to the Jews, why are you working? Why are you doing these works on the Sabbath day? This is kind of my summary of it. Though the Jews may observe Sabbath and refrain from their works, their labors, creative work, good works, etc., God himself never ceases night or day to work 
bringing his redemption to a world, to nations, to people, to individuals in desperate need of healing and rescue. I mean, just this statement alone by Jesus, what are you doing? Why would you do this on the Sabbath? My father is always working to this day, and so I am also working. I mean, somebody healed someone of 38 years of being infirm, and then they gave this as their reason. It might give you a little bit of pause, right? Like, I'm gonna think about that for a minute. But rather than the religious leaders <clears throat> contemplating this incredible miracle, rather than thinking through the other signs that Jesus has performed and putting it all together with the works that God himself does, it says they tried all the more to kill him. For not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now from here, Jesus goes on to appeal to them that he has only done and only does the works he has seen the Father do. That he actually has even greater works to accomplish that are from the Father. The way Jesus responds is actually fascinating. It's almost like, oh, are you, are you judging me and judging the works that I do? Oh, you don't realize, actually, I'm the judge. The Father's committed all judgment into my hands and the day is coming when everyone will stand before me and receive their just rewards. Jesus is the judge who has power to raise the dead, power to give life and to deal out judgment. And this is because Jesus is in the deepest partnership and relationship with the Father. Now, I say all that because we're dropping into this Next scene at the very end of John 5, and it's a scene kind of like a courtroom where Jesus is calling witnesses to testify to his person and his works. He's defending his works. He's defending his claim of authority. Remember, Jesus has claimed divine right to author life. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus is claiming he is God and that he is able to give divine life and deal with death, to render justice to every injustice. And so now Jesus is going to back up these claims with the various witnesses to his person and his works. And so, if you will, the first witness that Jesus calls to the stand is this another witness, which is interesting. In verse 31, Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. Now, this is the same word that Jesus will use in John 14, 16 to describe the Holy Spirit. He says there is another comforter from the Father. Jesus seems first to be appealing to the fact that not only of the Spirit's power at work in him in the works that he's doing with signs, power, words of life, but also of the internal witness in the hearts of people. The Spirit is testifying to individuals of the true nature and person of Jesus. We've said this before, but remember John the Baptist, even like this is the one that we've been waiting for, the one who will baptize with the Spirit. You've noticed how, you know, Andrew and Peter and the different apostles, they meet Jesus and then they're testifying, this is the one, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who the prophets wrote about, right? There is this internal witness that's happening all throughout the gospel of John. The spirit is testifying and it's resonating deeply with these individuals. There's this internal witness that the spirit is doing all throughout this story. But next, there's John's, I call it John's non-witness witness, right? The next 
excuse me, next, Jesus asks the religious leaders to consider the witness of John. Remember, the religious leaders early on in this gospel send delegates from Jerusalem to ask John about himself, to ask him about his ministry. Who are you? Are you Messiah? But remember, John replied that he was not Messiah, but he was preparing the way for Messiah. And when he was asked about himself, he specifically points to Jesus saying, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And later he says, this is the one on whom the Spirit remains, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. Now, Jesus goes into this whole thing with the religious leaders that John doesn't validate Jesus' claim because he's a human witness, but it's interesting. Jesus says, I bring this up that you might be saved. So that's why I call it John's non-witness witness, because even though Jesus throws it out there like, John even said this, but this doesn't validate the claims that I'm making here necessarily, but I appeal to you that you may be saved. The next witness that Jesus calls to the stand are the very works themselves that Jesus is doing. Jesus' works bear witness that the Father has sent him. Now, each of the works that Jesus has done are works of restoration, of healing, of giving life. And all of these works are works that are associated with the work that the prophet said would happen when God would reign as king. Restoration of the world of creation, the banishment of evil. We think about the casting out of demons that Jesus performs in his earthly ministry. The removal of sin, your sins are forgiven you. See, in the works of Jesus, the kingdom of God is present. It's very interesting, actually, that John does not use the word miracles, but he uses the word signs. And it seems that what John is actually saying is a sign of what is to come, right? So that when Jesus performs his miracles, he's actually pointing to the way things will be, things are when God rules as king. There's order, there's harmony, there's peace. There's love, there's life when God reigns as king. And so every time Jesus performs what we would call a miracle, this is actually a sign of what is to come. That this is what the kingdom of God is like. So the works themselves witness that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Next, Jesus says, the father himself bears witness. Now, of course, we know, though not recorded in this gospel, that at Jesus' baptism, the father spoke over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus is also, again, referring to the works. His works are a witness of the Father, of the validity of his claims and authority. As he already said, like, I heal this man on the Sabbath because my Father is working. That's why this work is done. The Father and I are in concert. We're in tandem. We are in deep partnership with one another. The problem or disconnect actually lies with the religious leaders, Jesus says. They don't know the Father. And that's why they miss the significance of the works themselves. They've never seen him, heard him, and his word does not find a home in their hearts. Now next, Jesus calls the very scriptures that they study that they rest their hope on to the witness stand. So not only is it the witness of the Spirit internally, is it the works themselves, is it the Father, but their very own scriptures testify of Jesus. 
Jesus challenges them that they search the scriptures in search of life, but the scriptures actually point to him, but they refuse to come to him that they may have life. Again, Jesus is getting to the root of the problem with the religious leaders. The problem is that they are not really after the glory or honor that comes from God. They've turned their religion and spiritual leadership internally. It's about them. It's about their own honor and glory. And that's why they are resisting Jesus. So finally, Jesus concludes, Moses, who they claim is their teacher, is actually going to accuse them in the final judgment because he wrote about Jesus, but they don't actually even believe Moses. Okay, can I just like pause for a second and just say like what a slapdown this conversation is, right? I'm just gonna read it in order, in bullet points, right? Jesus' indictment of them is so brutal. You don't know the Father, You've never heard his voice, seen his face. You don't have his word or his message in you. You don't know or understand the scriptures. You miss the whole point. The whole redemptive arc finds its fulfillment in me and you won't even come to me. You don't have God's love in you. You don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. You care more about what people think of you and their honor of you than what God thinks about you or what honors him. You don't even believe Moses because he wrote about me. And in fact, Moses is going to rise up and condemn you in the final judgment because you did not believe him. Ouch. Like this is intense. And it's, it's funny because, you know, honestly, I've been teaching this and just... I've mentioned before, I just love Jesus' gentle posture with people in the Gospel of John. And then I'm reading this and I'm like, oh yeah. And there's this, right? We've been highlighting Jesus' gentleness and his kindness and his approach to and treatment of people. But remember, Jesus did have some very hard, harsh things to say as well. The interesting thing is, is that Jesus' rebukes and challenges are reserved for the religious leaders, those who are right in their own estimation of themselves. They were often the rich, powerful, and influential of the day that were using their power and their influence not to help others, not for the benefit of others, but for their own glory and their own benefit. Jesus reserved his harshest rebukes for these people. But even in his rebukes, Jesus is not just shaming, humiliating, or correcting these religious leaders in order to put them in their place, in order to shut them out and condemn them. He's saying these things to challenge them, to appeal to them, to show them that they've lost their way. His desire is for them to humble themselves and to turn toward him, that they also might experience life in his name. Now, I just wanna pause just for a second. I remember years ago, my dad and I were actually having a conversation. And I think just for the way God has built me, I naturally have compassion for people who are far from God. In the way that we often think of people that are far from God, their lives are falling apart, right? They're, maybe addiction is present in their lives, whatever it might be. Like, I have a bleeding heart towards those people. But I simultaneously have a really, really hard time with self-righteous religious people, just personally. Sometimes I feel that I have no grace for these people. And I think this gives us pause 
Because when the grace and love of God are truly at work in our lives, even though we might have hard and harsh things to say to religious self-righteous people, the end goal should be that they also would experience life in the name of Jesus. It's not just to tear down, to destroy, to cancel, to remove them, but to see them redeemed. And guess what? That also takes grace. And I believe when the grace of God is at work in our lives, we're going to balance that tension. Now, I think the question that comes to me, I was thinking about this, like wrestling with this text for actually the last probably three weeks. Like, how do you teach such a hard text to people who are like, I want Jesus. I want more of Jesus. I want to grow. I want to be transformed by him. How do you teach a text like that, like this to them? You don't believe the Father. You don't know the Father. You've never heard his voice. Like, whack, 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 whack. You know, like, how is this a message for the church? Well, I started thinking specifically about Jesus's indictment. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but they testify of me. So I wanna talk about that. How does it happen that you could search the scriptures, that you can make your whole life about you know, being committed to Bible, Bible reading, Bible knowledge, church life, church culture and experience. How could it be that you could do all that and yet miss the whole point? Because listen, Jesus is talking to the people that should have known and recognized God when he was staring them in the face. But instead, they resisted him but they didn't just resist him, they continually threatened him. And finally, they murdered him. How does that happen? How do you achieve that degree of blindness? Again, how do you pour your life over the scriptures, memorizing them, using them as a light and guide to your life, and yet miss the whole Now, these seem like rhetorical questions, but they aren't because we often see very religious people, even leaders in the church, who claim the name of Christ, saying and doing things that are the opposite of the way of Jesus. Though they claim great piety and devotion, their lives their own private habits, how they deal with people is nothing like the Jesus of Scripture. And Jesus, as we've already said, he hones in on the issue with the religious leaders. The reason for them completely missing the point and the true nature of Jesus and his work is because they aren't actually after God or the things of God. They aren't after the things of God or what God, excuse me, or what really glorifies God. They're ultimately about themselves and their own glory, their own benefit. What do I get from this? What's in it for me? And I believe everyone needs to be aware or beware of that same thing. We need to beware of how we are approaching Scripture and the God of Scripture because it is of huge importance. Actually, it's a matter of life and death. And so what I want to do is I just want to talk about just some of the ways that we can approach Scripture and yet miss what Scripture is really all about. Of course, there's the intellectual approach to Scripture, right? Some people approach the Bible intellectually. The Bible contains languages, history, culture, 
incredible ideas, geography, poetry, and so much more. And you can, and many do, spend a lifetime reading, studying, lecturing, and writing about the Bible. This is, of course, the intellectual approach to the Bible. It's a fascinating ancient text to be appreciated, to be poured over, just like other ancient texts. And we can use the Bible this way as simply facts and information to know and make us smarter or more educated about people in ancient times and their religious practices or cultural social practices. In this approach, it's about mastering the text rather than being mastered by the text. It's about information, but it's not a book of transformation. Is this what the Bible is for? Now, though we can and should study Scripture though we should want to be able to master the text and and be able to hold the whole story or the individual books to see them completely, this is not the main purpose of the Bible. Commentator Frederick Bruner in his commentary on the Gospel of John simply reminds us, the Bible is not about the Bible. Now, there's the intellectual approach. There's also the egotistical approach. This is kind of approaching the Bible as timeless truth and spiritual inspiration. It's more of a practical approach to the Bible because people have questions of how to live well, how to raise children, make life decisions, you know, 40 Proverbs a day, right? Or, you know, one for the day, a whole book for the month how to make good life decisions, how to have a happy marriage, how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And some see the Bible as this timeless truth. It's the greatest of ancient human wisdom passed down to us. So the Bible becomes a sort of self-help book. It's about you, and it's interpreted to your liking and your situation. And actually, many Christians approach the Bible in this way. But I think this approach is actually open to anyone and everyone. It's almost like the spiritual magic eight ball, you know? Can I sleep with my girlfriend? Ants will go to heaven. Maybe. You know, like, we shake it, hoping some truth falls out of it. I'm not sure if you remember, but Gavin Newsom, in his inaugural speech, he talked about building a stronger California, And he used Jesus' story of the two men who built their houses, one on sand and another on the rock. And Governor Newsom, he used this story to make the point that we, the wise in this story, are building California on a rock. Whatever you think about Newsom's politics, I highly doubt that Jesus and Governor Newsom are talking about the same rock, right? Newsom, he never mentions Jesus or his source for this parable. But Gavin Newsom is doing what so many of us do with the Bible. We take a verse, we rip it out of its context, and we say, this is what I take this to mean, and this part means this, and this is how I apply it to my life and my situation. It's basically an Oprah interview, right? Like, Oh, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Oh, what's your favorite? And then they talk about it and it has nothing to do with the actual testimony of scripture or Jesus or anything. It's just this book that helps me and gives me kind of clarity on life. The question is, is the Bible ours to interpret and to take whatever we want it to mean? We use it for a shot of adrenaline to pick us up when we're down or to brighten our spirits for the daunting task. We turn to the Psalms or Proverbs, some inspirational words or the incredible stories of David slaying Goliath or Gideon and his 300 men against a whole army. And we take these to mean, oh, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. The sun always shines after the rain and sad stories always have happy endings. 
Is the Bible to be used like a book of inspirational quotes or a giant Hallmark card written for those special moments in life? Is the Bible for cliches, Etsy prints, and Pinterest boards? Personally, I have such a hard time with all that stuff. Maybe you can tell. (laughs) Because I think it undermines the power and profundity of what Scripture is actually about. In the Bible as a spiritual self-help book that's egotistical approach, the Bible is ultimately about my story. I'm the main character. It's about making my life the best it can possibly be because through the wisdom contained in it, I can not only be wise and moral, I can be blessed. Eugene Peterson in his book, Eat This Book, A Conversation in the Art of Spiritual Reading. He says, what is surprising today is how many people treat the Bible as a collection of Sibylline oracles. He means like these you know, ancient kind of mystic prophecies. Verses or phrases without context or connections. This is nothing less than astonishing. The scriptures are the revelation of a personal, relational, incarnational God to actual communities of men and women with names in history. The witnesses to the revelation are real writers who do their writing and witnessing in the full light of day and with the confirmation of their worshiping communities, everything is out in the open. The practice of dividing the Bible into numbered chapters and verses has abated this sibling complex. It gives the impression that the Bible is a collection of thousands of self-contained sentences and phrases that can be picked out or combined arbitrarily in order to discern our fortunes or fates. But the Bible verses are not fortune cookies to be broken open at random, and the Bible is not an astrological chart to be impersonally manipulated for amusement or profit. If I could gently summarize Peterson, the Bible is not about you. And yet, it is written for you. You can and should go to the scripture for wisdom for your life. There are moral lessons to be learned and encouragement and help for us in hard times, but this is not the main purpose of the Bible. The Bible isn't primarily about our self-discovery or self-realization. It is about the God who comes to rescue, to deliver us from ourselves and from what sin has worked and ravaged in our lives in order that we can be, by his power at work in us, who and what he created us to be. Again, Peter says, this is a text that reveals the sovereign God in being and action. It doesn't flatter us. It doesn't seek to please us. We enter this text to meet God as he reveals himself, not to look for truth or history or morals that we can use for ourselves. What he insisted on supremely was that we do not read the Bible in order to find out how to get God or fit God into our lives, get him to participate in our lives. That's getting it backwards. See, we can use the scripture for the benefit of our lives, but if that is the first and main approach, we have missed the whole point of scripture. Jordan and I were just talking about this. Man, you can be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. But let me just tell you, if you follow what this book is actually about, it will not be in the way that you think it. You will be, if you truly follow the purpose of this book, you will be happy because you will follow the most blessed person who has ever lived, the most fullest, most beautiful human being who has ever existed, Jesus Christ himself. 
You will be made into his image and his likeness if you discern correctly the purpose and intention of this book. You will be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams because you have riches reserved in the kingdom of God stored up for you. You will be wise unto salvation. You will shine like the stars forever and ever. But let us not mistake the happy, health, wealth, and wisdom of this world for the happiness, the health, the wealth, and the wisdom of God's world. That is getting it backwards. There is a way to read and study scripture that misses the main character and the main point, and we have to be aware of doing this. According to Jesus, the correct approach to read the Bible is Christocentrically, with Jesus Christ at the center and as the focus, the main character of all of Scripture. This is how Jesus saw himself. You remember the conversation on the road to Emmaus when he says to two of his disciples, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures have written concerning the Christ, that he needs suffer, die, and rise again the third day. And then it says, beginning from Moses, he showed them all of the ways that scripture finds its culmination in Christ. It's all ultimately about him, continually pointing to him and finding its fulfillment in him. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, it's not just that there are a few places in scripture that allude to the Trinity. I remember, you know, being a little kid in Sunday school or even in junior high, you know, and it's like, look, could it be, right? And like, so you like, you circle those in Trinity, question mark, right? Like, and like, you found like this little like Bible code somewhere deep hidden in the Old Testament, Right? Like these little like points of, you know, satellites like, oh, it's out there, it's in there. You just gotta go and search and you'll find it. Or maybe a few theophanies here and there where the pre-incarnate son of God shows up in the narrative or certain passages that clearly indicate or prophesy about Jesus's birth or life. Yeah, sure, that's true. But in fact, the whole narrative of scripture is about Jesus and ultimately hinges on him. See, the Bible is continually telling the story of humans in slavery to some kind of oppressor and God's compassion and kindness to rescue and redeem people, setting them free to live without fear and to prosper under his reign. Do you know that the Bible is essentially telling the same story again and again and again? Think about the Exodus. God's people are in slavery, and what does it say? I have come down to rescue them. That's incarnation language. And so God comes down. He performs signs and wonders. He humiliates the gods of Egypt. And he leads out his people in triumph through the Red Sea, but not without a slaughtered lamb who takes away the sin of the people and covers them from the judgment. The Bible is telling the same story again and again and again. I remember a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we were talking about the exile of Israel in Babylon. And randomly, it just came to me in that moment of how we have the story in Samuel about how the ark of God, God's presence among Israel is captured by the enemy. It's captured by the Philistines and it's taken into the temple of Dagon and it looks as though God has been defeated. The Philistines come in the next morning to check on the temple and you know all the things going on there. And what do they find? They find Dagon flat on his face before the ark of God. They just assume, you know, some, somebody must have knocked him over in the middle of the night or something, right? So they prop him back up again. Next morning they come in, what do they find? 
Dagon is on his face again, but his head and his arms are missing now. And finally, we don't have time to tell the whole story, but the ark of God is returned to God's people and the Philistines have come under this judgment from God. But if you just step back and think about this story, it seems as though God has been defeated by his enemies. He goes into captivity, but it's in order that he might triumph over the gods and that the gods might be judged and his people might live in peace. See, the Bible's telling the same story again and again. Whether it's about human slavery or oppression or defeat, it's about the God who comes down, enters our suffering and our pain in order to deliver us from it, to redeem us and this whole creation that we might live at peace under his reign forever and ever and ever. See, Jesus is the linchpin of all of scripture. It's all about him. The purpose or reason of scripture then is to know this God of creation and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And to know and understand history and humanity from God's point of view, but not as a spectator, not as disconnected information, but ultimately for our own lives to be brought into God's great story. It's not about fitting God into our lives, making room for him, but that God has made room for us in his story and invited us to be a part of the great story of the world, that we would find our true meaning and true purpose in the story of God. This is the great invitation of Scripture. Scripture is for the purpose of being shaped and formed in the story of God by following the way of Jesus, to bear his image, to practice his way of life, to become like him. Now, being caught up in the story requires our participation. It requires active listening. It requires response. It's dialoguing with God, the one who is speaking in scripture. And as God speaks and we respond in prayer and worship, we enter this dialogue with God and this transformation process happens within us and we are shaped more and more into the image of God. The God who is love. Remember Paul in his epistle to Timothy, he says that the end or purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. I mean, that's astounding. That's kind of like one of those gut check moments. Like if the love of God, God's indiscriminate love, the love that causes rain to fall on the deserving and the undeserving, the love that actually forgives enemies and does not will their destruction, but their restoration. That kind of love is supposed to be growing more and more and more in God's people as we read and study scripture, as we come and we are taught Scripture, we should grow into love. This is the purpose of the commandment. And so that's that gut check moment. If that is not at work in my life, I need to recheck my Bible study. I need to recheck my Bible reading. I need to go back in order that I might go forward. Where have I missed this transformative work that Scripture is meant to do? See, to miss this, to miss Jesus and the new life that he came to bring to humanity, this becoming love. In, in my searching, reading, and exploration of Scripture, it's to miss out completely. 
not just on the purpose of the Bible, but on the meaning of life. It's no wonder that Paul says, if I have you know, tongues of men and of angels, if I have all gifts of prophecy, if I give my body to be burned and all my possessions to the poor, if I have not love, it is worthless. It's meaningless. It amounts to nothing. For the end of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Peterson, again, he says, let the reader beware. Just having print on the page and knowing how to distinguish nouns from verbs isn't enough. I might own a Morocco leather Bible, paid $50 for it, but I do not own the word of God to do with it whatever I want. God is sovereign. The word of God is not my possession. The words printed on the pages of my Bible give witness to the living and active revelation of the God of creation and salvation. The God of love who became the word made flesh in Jesus and I better not forget it. If in my Bible reading I lose touch with this livingness, if I fail to listen to this living Jesus, submit to this sovereignty and respond to this love, I become arrogant in my knowing and impersonal in my behavior. An enormous amount of damage is done in the name of Christian living by bad Bible reading. Caveat lector, let the reader beware. The Bible is not about the Bible. It's not about self-help, knowledge, or inspirational stories. The Sabbath, we found, is not about physical rest or a day off. See, John 5.10, what's happening here is the religious leaders misunderstand and misapply the Sabbath, and that's why they persecute this man and persecute Jesus. We'll see in John chapter six, manna, bread, is not about having your stomach filled. We'll see that in our next study, a story about misunderstanding and misapplying bread that fed the multitudes. Each of these are not ends in themselves. Bible, Sabbath, bread, they are about God offering himself to us as the way of life. God offering himself to us as the true rest and peace that our souls were made for. They are about God offering himself to us as the true nourishment and satisfaction for our lives. And all of this is offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Let's not miss that, because to miss that is to miss everything. And God forbid that we would find ourselves being biblical experts, but that we would miss the work that God is doing in the world. God forbid that we would find ourselves knowing all of the promises of God, but not realizing that they are yes and amen in Jesus and in Jesus alone. God forbid that we would be Bible people, but not be Jesus people. God forbid that we would be wise according to the scriptures, and yet that we would resist the work of God. Now, even this morning, we have the bread and the cup before us. We have an invitation to come, to eat, and to remember. But let me just say this. It's not about the bread, and it's not about the cup. Do these in remembrance of me, Jesus said. It's about the living Jesus who offers himself to us today. That's what this table is about. That's what this moment is about.
It's about the living Jesus that meets us in the exact moment that we find ourselves now. He offers his fullness for our emptiness, his love for our loneliness, his forgiveness for our burdens and sins, his comfort for our fears and failures, his victory for our defeat, his righteousness for our shame, his presence for our journey before us. And so this morning, as we come to the table, let's remember that we are coming not just to a table of little wafers and weird, nondescriptive liquid. Can't wait to go back to grape juice. Let's remember that we are coming to the living Jesus and let's allow him to do that deep work of transformation in us. And so maybe for us this morning, it is that, Lord, I've been using the scripture all wrong and I'm still unfulfilled. Lord, I've been thinking it was all about me, and this is a moment to turn. This is a moment to receive just comfort and redirection from him. Whatever it is, the living Christ desires to meet you here at the table. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that. As we meet you in broken bread and poured out wine, Lord, that you would meet us with your grace. And Lord, if we have strayed from you, Lord, that you would return us to your shepherding and your care. Lord, if we have sinned against you or if we have sinned against one another, Lord, that you would wash us, cleanse us, that you would forgive us. Lord, would you do your restorative work in us this morning? and work that deep, deep love of God. Continue that work that you have begun in us, we pray. Amen.